But I, I, I first want to say this morning that it is a privilege to gather with God's people on God's day and celebrate God's grace and prepare for God's great, glorious time that we have with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's really what this is today. It, it is a gathering together of his people in preparation of his return. And it's a privilege. It's an honor for us to be able to be here. And I feel that honor and privilege today. I also do want to say thank you for your partnership with FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, I, I, need, I need you to know, for some of you who don't, who don't know how you partner with us, uh, John Blanton is actually a character coach for us at White Plains High School, right now serving with the football team, but likely will be serving other teams as the year unfolds at, at White Plains. You also have hosted a couple of our huddles, Thursday night huddle. We had about 100 plus students right here on a Thursday night one time and then a little over 20 the second time where we just preach the gospel, love the students and encourage them to put their faith in, in Jesus and to stand for him on their campuses. You partner with us through financial giving, and I know that the new year you guys are going to really step up and be significant partners with us, and I just want you to know that as we go from campus to campus, as we press into relationships with coaches, like our vision, our whole mission is to make disciples of every coach and every athlete, and so that they'll be connected to the local church and be servants there. That's our mission, and you're helping us partner in that way. And I want to say thank you for doing that. Now, when we turn to Philippians here in just a moment, Paul actually writes to the Philippians in chapter 1. And he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. And so I simply want to reiterate the very words of Paul back to the Philippians. And I want to say to Iron City, thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, because we are a team working together just like Paul and the Philippians were. Now with that, please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippian church. If you don't know where that is in the New Testament, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter three. Now, if you can remember last week, for those of you who were here, we studied verses 10 through 16 and the title of the message was press on, press on. And this is what we said last week, that your position in Christ should lead you to your pursuit of Christ. We said, well, what is our position in Christ? Well, when we crossed over from being dead to alive, God didn't just make us alive. It's awesome to be alive. It's a lot better to be alive than to be dead. But he made us alive. But not only that, he made us citizens in his kingdom. He made us children in his family. We're sons and daughters of the living God. The eternal, immortal God has made us his own. We belong to him. He loves us. We're in him. He's in us. That's what our position is. And so what Paul is saying is, is that your position in Christ should lead you to your pursuit of Christ. And so we said, pursue him. We said, pursue Jesus Christ. We said, press on in your pursuit of Christ and practice maturity in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. That was his message to us in verses 10 to 16. And today he really, he switches metaphors for us. And, and we were talking about running last week. 
We were talking about going hard after Christ. And this week, he kind of switches metaphors and it's like, it's like wartime mentality. And, and today, it is stand firm. Stand firm. Let's read chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, because of that reality, my brothers, whom I love and long for, you're my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The apostle Paul essentially says, Philippians, when you're you're tempted to turn to false gospels like legalism or licentiousness, when you're tempted to shrink back under spiritual persecution, when you're tempted to be discouraged by problems in your own life or even problems in the church, Stand firm in the Lord through imitating followers of Christ and being grieved over the enemies of Christ and looking forward to eternity of Christ. That's what I want you to do. So the big idea today, church, Iron City Baptist Church, this is what God wants you to do today and every day until the return of Jesus is stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Now, if I were a basketball coach, which I am not, but if I were and coaching, let's say a junior high basketball team over here at White Plains Middle School and, and we're, we're playing an arch rival and, and, and the game is going really good and both teams are playing excellent. It's a slow, it's a slow paced game and, and both teams are just kind of trading buckets back and forth. And then early in the fourth quarter of the tie score, the arch rival team breaks out into a full court press. It is, it is full court from the, from the inboundsing of the ball and they are trapping my team. They, they are running through and making steals and getting layups and all of a sudden it goes from a tie game to we're down two, we're down four, we're down six, we're down eight. And, and my team doesn't know what to do in this full court press. And, and if I don't do something, then, then we're gonna, the game's gonna get out of hand. And so I call a timeout as a coach. And I gather everybody together 
And, and they're, they're breathing hard and they're a little bit frustrated. They don't know what to, what to do. And, and here, here I am as the coach. I gather them together. And I say, okay, guys, you're losing. Start winning. All right, Wildcats on three, Wildcats on three. One, two, three, Wildcats. What, what kind of coaching strategy is that? That's, that's not a very good strategy, is it? Like you're losing, start winning. No, what, what, what a, a real team would expect is that the coach would stand in there and create a plan as to how to break the press, right? We gotta have a strategy for how to break the press. And listen, that's exactly what Paul does in this passage is that he says, stand firm in the Lord, stand firm. But he doesn't just say, okay, go get them. He says, this is how you can stand firm. I've got a strategy for how you can do this. I'm not just saying do it on a wing and a prayer. I'm gonna give you a strategy for how you can break the press in your own life. And here it is, three strategies for how you can stand firm in the Lord in the midst of a full court press. Number one, follow those who love Jesus Christ. Follow those who love Jesus Christ. He says, brothers, brothers, like family members, you, you, you brothers and sisters, we're in this same family together. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And so Paul is, is when he says join in imitating me, like, I don't think I have to define the word imitation, like to imitate somebody. It's just simply to watch what they do and do what they do. It is to pay close attention to who they are and what they do and say, I want to be like who they are and I want to do what they do. That's imitation. And he says, join in imitating me. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul actually says explicitly, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not saying I'm the end all be all, but what he is saying is, is I've got my eyes on Christ. I've got my eyes on the prize and I'm running hard after him. And I want you to follow me as I follow him. And I want you to imitate me as I imitate him. And I have no shame in asking you to imitate me because I know that at my heart of hearts and what really who I am is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, even being conformed to his death. That's what he just said in chapter three. And so he has no uh, uh, embarrassment to say, imitate me as I follow after Jesus Christ. Now, now he says, keep your eyes on those who walk to the same example. That, that, that phrase, keep your eyes. Now, this is important. It means to spy out, to look closely, to give close attention to. It's not simply to stand at a distance and see another believer and say, oh man, I really appreciate them. Like they're, they're, they're doing a great job in living for Jesus. And then they're, they're a wonderful example. And then just kind of walk away from that. And then the next time you see them, oh, you keep on going. No, he, he's saying spy out investigate, look closely, look at how they live their life. Look at what shapes they're thinking. Look at the pattern of the walk that they have. Look at what they say, what they do, what they love, what they hate, investigate them. He's saying, and then he says, this example 
this word example, it's, it's, it's the pattern, it's the prototype. It's, it's kind of like for you farmers, it's like taking that, um, taking that brand and if you brand your cattle or whatever, it's like you've got this, this exact pattern and it goes on every single animal. He says, look at that example that we have and follow after it. So this is what I want to, to help you with, church, in following those who love Christ. I want, to give you, I want to give you kind of some, some sub-strategy points on what does that look like. So under your outline, look first at identify them. Identify them. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna imitate those who love Jesus, you've gotta know who it is that loves Jesus. You gotta be able to pick them out, identify them. And I want to say this, that there, there, are, there are like three groups of people that we can look at and we can identify who love Jesus. The first is like the believers in the Bible. Like in God's holy word, we have so many people that we can see who really love Jesus and believed in Jesus. And we need to draw inspiration from them. People like Caleb. You remember Caleb and Joshua who were two of the 10 spies who were to go out and spy out the land of Canaan? But when the spies got there, they saw that, that the people in Canaan were tall and big and strong and there were many of them and, and, and they had fortified cities and it was a very intimidating land. And so that when those 12 spies came back to give a report to Moses and said, well, what do you got? And they said, oh, the people are so big. They're so strong. They've got fortified cities, walls and gates and armies. There's no way we could go over there. And Caleb kind of said, oh, wait, wait a minute. We serve the living God. We, we believe in the Lord Almighty who has already promised to us that land. Let's go after them and accomplish exactly what God has called us to accomplish. Well, we need to look at people like Caleb and say, just as Caleb stood firm in his faith and his confidence in the Lord, then let's stand firm in our confidence and our faith in the Lord. Well, we need to look at people like David and, and while he had a, a marred life and he was imperfect to be sure, he also said, Lord, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. And we need to see that and we say, Lord, I want to pant after you and desire presence with you and fellowship with you the way that David did. We need to see people in the scriptures that we can draw strength from. And, and this is the reason I say that, church is that in the book of Philippians alone, Paul has already said, look at Christ's example. He had the most humiliating birth. He lived the most humble life. He had the most humiliating death that's ever been, then died before. Look at him and follow his pattern. And then Paul says, I'm following his pattern, follow after me. And then he writes in length in chapter two about Timothy and Epaphroditus who have risked their lives for the advancement of the gospel. They have brought him things and resources that he needs to advance the gospel in Rome at risk of their own lives. And he's saying, look at them, follow after them. Paul is a big believer in looking at other people and examining them and identifying them. And that's what I'm saying. And church, we, we need not divorce ourselves from the history of the church either. For those of you who know church history, there is a long line of godly men and women who have stood firm in the faith all the way to the very end. I, I think of people like John Huss. Some of you have never heard the name John Huss. 
But John Huss believed in the scriptures. He believed in the authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of God's holy word. And, and he wanted to, to, to submit himself to that. The problem was is that the Roman church did not want him to do that. And so they tied him to a stake in the center of town. And when they did that, they actually burned him alive at the stake. And as he's burning alive at the stake, he is standing firm in his faith in God and he is praying for the people who are burning him to death pleading for their forgiveness and pleading for their salvation and praying that God would use this event in his life to cause people to turn to the Holy Scriptures as the authoritative power in their own lives. We need to look at people like John Huss and people like Martin Luther who stood up in front of the Holy Roman Empire at, at risk to his own life and he says, my conscience can do no other. Here I stand. We need to take the, a, a page out of the book of the Susanna Wesleys of the world and the Jonathan Edwards and the Athanasius and John Knox, John Knox, who said simply this, he was so passionate to see his, his nation, Scotland, come to Christ. And he says, give me Scotland or give me death. We need to also look at those around us, believers today. We need to identify people who God has put in our lives providentially who demonstrate great passion for the Lord in their lives. Church, I, I don't know that I need to um, inform you, but I can remind you at this moment that here we are in America. We are Americans. And we are marked um, oftentimes by an American mentality which is a mentality of, of greed. It's a mentality of laziness. It's a mentality of we've got, my, we've got our rights and our privileges. We have expectations. And, and so we, we kind of get this mentality of, of uh, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and don't let anybody have any of it. That's kind of the American mentality. Because it's like here and now. This life is all that we've got. We better soak it up. We better live it up. We better enjoy it up because, hey, we, it's just here and it's gone. And, and whatever's happened here and now, that's all we've got. That's kind of the American mentality. And, and, and what we need to do is take off an American mentality and an American citizenship as our primary identity and take on a Christ-like mentality and have a an heavenly citizenship as our first priority. And we need to look at people who are, who are generous rather than greedy, who work hard rather than are lazy, who, who have a spirit of evangelism and outreach toward others rather than to sit at home and soak it up. We need to look at those kinds of people. We need to identify them as people that we want to be like and we want to start investigating their lives so that we can be more like them and less like those who primarily identify with this nation as their primary citizenship. So we need to follow those who love Christ. We need to identify them. And then if you're still taking notes, we need to investigate them. We need to investigate them. We need to ask questions like, how do they live? What motivates them? What disciplines do they have in their life that make them fruitful? How do they respond to success and how do they respond to failure? We need to investigate very closely. I, I get the opportunity to go on a school campus or multiple school campuses practically every day. 
And I want to tell you something that I've learned over 20 years. It is not an accident as to why successful coaches are successful and unsuccessful coaches are unsuccessful. It's not an accident. There are disciplines, practices, routines that successful coaches have in place that over time they're going to have success wherever they go because they have a life of discipline and they have a leadership that presses that discipline on everyone that they lead. I've noticed that. I've observed it. I've investigated it and I've learned from it. And I want to tell you that you and I need to do the same in our own Christian life. We need to look at the people who are successful in this Christian life. And by successful, I mean who are loving and generous and hospitable and evangelistic and who put their money where their mouth is and who take their time and their treasure and their talent and they leverage it all for the glory of God. We need to see them, investigate them and say, Lord, would you produce in me what you produced in them? Because I love the fruit that they're bearing for the kingdom of God. Investigate them and then imitate them, imitate them. Love what they love, hate what they hate, do what they do. All right, second strategy. Second strategy is grieve those who hate Christ. You could also put in there, resist those who hate Christ. But I say grieve because if you look down at the passage, Paul actually says for many, of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's weeping. This is not just like one tear that is being shed. This is a, this is a present verb that he's using. It's an active verb. It's not just tears, it's emotional grief that Paul has. He's struggling with sorrow and sadness as he thinks about these enemies of the cross of Christ. And this word enemies, Y'all, it's not just somebody who's ambivalent about Christ. It, he, th these, these enemies, they are hostile. They are in enmity with Christ. They hate Christ. They're, they're the adversaries and enemies of Christ. And this is what we need to identify about them, y'all, before we go any further. He's not talking about the Roman prisoners who are watching guard over him. He's not even talking about Caesar who stands as Lord and as Savior over all of the Roman Empire. He's actually talking about people who have in some way identified with Christ, who have in some way um, marked themselves as Christians, but they either abuse the cross of Christ, they neglect the cross of Christ, or they leverage the cross of Christ for their own personal gain. Those are the enemies of Christ. And he says their end is destruction. Their minds are set. They, they have directed their will and affections and consciences against Christ and on earthly things. And so let's just do a, let's just have an exercise for a moment. Let, let's exercise our minds and let's ask this question. What does the cross of Christ represent? He says, I'm crying, I'm weeping over here. I'm sorrowful because these people are enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, you have to ask, what does the cross of Christ represent? Like, what are they enemies of, Paul? What does the cross of Christ represent? I made a list. 
You know, the cross of Christ represents the sinfulness of humanity. Like it, it represents our depravity. Why else would the eternal son of God have to come to planet earth and not only live the life that we're supposed to live, but be put up on a cross, wrist nailed, feet nailed, crown of thorns over the head, ashamed in his nakedness before everybody and not only receiving the wrath of unrighteous men, but receiving the wrath of a righteous and holy God. Why would that be necessary? Because we are so sinful that we can't have fellowship with God and that's the only way that he could do it. It, it represents the, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. Jesus hung up on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It represents the totality of, of experiencing hell on the cross on our behalf because he says once he had received all of God's wrath, once he had received hell on earth for us, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head. And so it represents the power of substitution. We sang a song about 15 minutes ago and, and we said something like this, you took my sin and my sorrow and you made it my very own. You see, that's what the cross represents. The cross of, of Christ represents that Christ took our sin, he took our rebellion, our darkness, our, our disobedience and bore it on him on himself so that we might not have to bear it for all eternity. So it also represents the love of God. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. So the cross of Christ represents both the wrath of God against sin and the love of God for sinners. That's what it represents. There is nothing, like you take the cross away and its power and its, and its full fulfillment of the righteousness of God and then you and I are left wanting. We're left naked and ashamed and needing something to get us to heaven. And, and so Without the cross of Christ, we have nothing. I want to say that to you. Without the cross of Christ, we have nothing. And Paul is saying, I grieve. I, I'm weeping because there are people who are attaching themselves to the church who are either belittling the power of the cross of Christ or they're denying the power of the cross of Christ. And this is blasphemy. And so when we, when we think about grieving those who hate Christ, I want to do, I want to tell you what, how do we do that or what should we do? First, identify those who hate Christ. Identify them. In our day, we can identify some folks who would never dare say they hate Christ, but, but by their own confession, by their own theology, by their own practice, they demonstrate that. I want to say like modernist, modern Christianity. Modern Christianity, they're anti-supernatural. 
anti-supernaturalists. They look at the gospels and they see Jesus walking on water or feeding 5,000 people with a few fish and bread. They, they see him like putting his hands on somebody who is blind and makes him see, or even worse, they see him rising from the dead on the third day. And they look at all of that and they all just say, well, that's kind of a metaphor for life. That's kind of just something, a story that's written to give us inspiration. Those things didn't actually happen, but, but we can learn from, from kind of the story. Let me tell you something. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus didn't walk on water, if Jesus didn't feed the 5,000, you and I are hopeless and the word of God has been made void. They're an enemy of the cross of Christ because they deny the very substitutionary work that was accomplished there in his resurrection. But not only do you have modern Christianity, you have postmodern Christianity. Some of you are familiar with the term postmodernism. Postmodern Christianity says, listen, whatever is true for you is good for you. And whatever is true for me is good for me. You keep believing what you believe and I'll keep believing what I believe. And in the end, we'll just get to the same place. And so if you believe that Jesus is a substitutionary sacrificial lamb on a cross, then that's wonderful. If I believe that Jesus is merely a good example, Example and lived a good life and he was a good teacher and that's it, that's good for me. That's postmodern Christianity and it is no Christianity at all. We need to identify that for what it is. We need to identify those who, we well, could call this morally superior Christianity. Morally superior Christianity. And th that's the Christianity that is so prevalent today. Look on social media, look in, the, look in the world of entertainment, people who claim to be Christians, and they say, they say things like, well, our moral conscience is higher than the moral conscience that we see in the Bible, the moral conscience that we see in scriptures. And so while, while the scriptures may condemn a certain kind of union or marriage, um, we know better now, 2,000 years later. And so we are morally superior to the scriptures in, in this area and in that area and in this area. Listen, when you begin to elevate your own thinking over the very revelation of God from heaven to men for us, then you have set yourself in opposition to the very cross of Jesus Christ. So you've got modern Christianity, postmodern Christianity, morally superior Christianity. You get, you've even got Christless Christianity. I, I have people that I know, people that I care for, who would just say, listen, listen, God is great. His world is amazing. Let's, let's just drop all the cross stuff and the resurrection stuff and the sin stuff and let's just love God and enjoy people and soak up this world that he has made. There's a famous feminist a theologian who said, I do not think we need a theory of atonement at all. I do not think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff, end quote. That's a Christless Christianity, and that is the statement of someone who has put themselves as an enemy of Christ. I'll tell you someone else or some other groups that are, that are enemies of the cross of Christ, and that's what we could call pragmatic Christianity. You know, what a, you know what a pragmatist is? A pragmatist is someone who just simply says, whatever works now, do that. Whatever works now, do that. No matter, no matter what the end game is, no matter what the end results are going to be, if it works now, do it. And our churches are eaten up with pragmatism. 
We want decisions. We want baptism. We want numbers. We want to climb the ladder. And so they preach 10-minute sermons that don't mention the cross but appeal to the emotions. Then they have 20-minute invitations with background music and get people down front for a quote-unquote decision for Christ. The only problem is they didn't preach Christ. They didn't preach his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his powerful resurrection, and his lordship over all. And you have materialistic Christianity. It's better known as the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. They say God wants you to be healthy all the time. He wants you to be wealthy all the time. He wants you to be happy all the time. They talk about houses and cars and jets and clothes and, and they couch it in language of God's blessing. Where was God's blessing on the Apostle Paul when he was in prison writing to the Philippians, chained to, to, to soldiers and saying, I rejoice today. Where was his blessing? You see, health and wealth and prosperity preachers and leaders acknowledge the crucifixion of Christ but they deny the call of every Christian to take up their cross and follow after Jesus. We have to identify them, y'all. This is uncomfortable. We've got to identify legalistic Christianity, which says the cross of Christ plus religious works equals salvation. Denominational Christianity, the cross of Christ plus our denomination equals salvation. Traditionalism Christianity, the cross of Christ plus my very long-held traditions equal salvation. Political Christianity, the cross of Christ plus political success equals salvation. We've got to identify those because if we don't identify them, then we are going to be susceptible to follow them, either hook, line, and sinker, or just a little bit where we get off kilter in our relationship with Christ, where we no longer think the thoughts of Christ and follow the example of people who are following after him. We must identify them. They are the most dangerous Christ-rejecting leaders in the world. Identify them, understand them. Understand them. Understand their loyalty. Look down at the passage. Paul says, their God is their belly. Well, what is he saying there? He's talking about sensual, fleshly, physical passions, food, sex, entertainment, pleasure on a physical level that says, that's what I want. That's what scares me so much. Like when you make the thrust of your Christianity and your leadership about material things, then what does that say about what is at the heart of hearts of your soul? Whether it's cars, houses, things, stuff, trips. Like if that's what you're all about, if that's where you're finding your rest and your enjoyment, then that says a lot about where your allegiance is. And so he says, understand their loyalty. Their God is their belly. He says, understand what they celebrate. He says, they glory in their shame. Sexual immorality, deception, self-centeredness, like you need to understand that that's, that's what they're about. Understand their mentality. It says their minds are set on earthly things. Like they get super excited about worldly things, but not about the gospel of Christ. And this is what he says. Look at the very start of that statement. He says, their end is destruction. 
They will spend all eternity in ruin and destruction. We need to understand that. We're not playing games here. This is not uh, an academic exercise to understand the broader cultural Christianity scene. This is an exercise in understanding that there are enemies of the cross of Christ and it is a matter of life and death and heaven and hell. Lord, keep us tethered to the cross of Christ, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and let him be the heartbeat of our very souls and don't let us venture off these paths. And then he says, you know, withstand them, withstand them. Don't hate them. Don't mock them. That's why I'm not up here today trying to mock people who are easy to mock. I'm not trying to be like uh, flippant about what they're about or the followers that they have. I, would, I feel that that would be not only dishonorable to God, but it would, it would lighten the, the blood earnest reality that there are people who claim Christ, but who are enemies of them. And so we've got to withstand them. We, we can't mock them or hate them. We just must not listen to them. We must pray for them and we must warn people whom we love about them. I mean, there is the most popular preacher in the world with the biggest church in the world. He's right here in America. And this is the thing is he doesn't deny the cross by saying it never happened. He, he simply denies the cross by not preaching it and not declaring its power and not making it central in his ministry. And because of that, there are people who flock and flock to him and listen to him and turn on the television, and yet he does not preach the cross of Christ. We need to be grieved by that. We need to be saddened by that. And anybody whom we love and know who follows that as, as, their, as their primary allegiance, we need to warn them that the cross of Christ must be central in the people who bear the name of Christ. This is serious. That's why Paul wrote it. It's also uncomfortable, but Christianity following after Christ was never promised to us to be uncomfortable. Third, here's the third strategy is anticipate eternity with Christ. So we're following those who love Jesus. We're grieving and resisting those who hate Jesus. But here we go. We're anticipating our time with Jesus. He says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject everything to himself. Like he takes this idea of citizenship and he says, remember who you belong to. Remember who your primary passport is signed by. Remember what, what city you're really a part of. Like you're really just in this city presently, this material geographical city, and you're passing through to that celestial city that you are an eternal citizen of, he's saying. And so here we go as part of this strategy, embrace your citizenship in Christ. Embrace your citizenship in Christ. Your primary citizenship is not in the United States of America. Your primary citizenship, if you are a believer in Christ, is in the, in the heavenlies with Christ. And your primary identity, 
Whether you're a a plumber or a farmer or a teacher or or a a stay-at-home mother who cares for children, your primary identity is not a plumber or a teacher or a stay-at-home mother. It is a redeemed child of God. So embrace that citizenship. Embrace that identity. Know that's who you are at the core of your very being. Embrace it. And then await your sight of Christ. I read Revelation chapter 4, 5, 21, and 22 this morning as I just wanted to soak in this glorious, eternal, heavenly vision of the Lord Jesus. And I would encourage you this afternoon or tonight in your study groups, read those passages. Read those passages because in those passages, you you get this vision of the Savior who is on the throne, who myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels and redeemed human beings are saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And, And when the new Jerusalem comes down from the heavens, And the celestial city now becomes a part of the city that we're all a part of on that mountaintop. There will be no sun. There will be no moon because he will emanate. He will give the light and he will grant to us a vision, not only of him, but also of of being like him. So that when we see him, not only will we see him as he is, but John says, we will be like him. Now I will say this. When you've got a throne and you've got a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who bled for you, who now is sitting on top of the mountaintop of God and he emanates eternal light and he displays perfect beauty and glory and an awesomeness and an infinity of reign over everything that is. When you've got a vision for that, when you can see that, then it sure does motivate you to get rid of these worldly strategies for how to get along in life. And it motivates you to stay far away from anything that's gonna be an enemy of that lamb and say, I'm gonna run as hard as I can to him because I anticipate my time with him when the clouds part and the trumpet sounds and he comes back on that white stallion. So await your sight of Christ and anticipate your conformity to Christ. Anticipate your conformity to Christ. I, uh, it was not too long ago that I was at Lowe's getting some tools and the young woman in front of me was probably 30 years old and she was in a wheelchair with uh, some other physical limitations that made it difficult for her to get around. And she had gathered up multiple tools and resources for her to purchase and to wheel back into her car and get in and go home to her apartment and repair her apartment. And she seemed to be excited about that. She could not walk. She had a difficulty like putting out her money because of the way that her hands were. And as I was looking at her and I was considering my own physical well-being in light of where she was in life, 
I began to be sad over her physical condition. And I began to think about my own good physical condition. And it drove me to pray for this young woman. And I, and I said, Lord, if she doesn't know you, would you give her faith in you so that one day, one day she will know physical wholeness, spiritual wholeness, a sight of Christ and a becoming like Christ so that she can run to the highest mountain, so that she can swim in the eternal rivers that Jesus Christ himself feeds with the living water that he has. And may she experience eternal glory like, like she has no concept of in this moment. And I began to think that's exactly what I want too, where there will be no tear. There will be no sorrow, no sin, no sadness, no death. Look forward to that day. Get ready for your conformity to Christ is what the apostle Paul is saying. Church, look at chapter four, verse one. He says, therefore, my brothers, because of that, like, this is what you need to do. Stand firm in this way. That's what the word thus means. Stand firm in this way. Follow those who love Jesus. Resist those who hate Jesus. Embrace your citizenship with Jesus. Do those three things and you will stand firm in the Lord until your life on earth is done. Last week, I told you about the Cheyenne Indians who all, each tribe had their own dog soldier who went out ahead, got off of his horse, put that stake in the ground, tethered the rope that was on his wrist to that very uh, stake and says, I'm not moving off of this place. I am not moving come hell or high water, no matter how much we might be getting defeated, no matter what pressure I receive, I am standing in my place as a representative of my tribe. I will not move. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Stand unwavering, be immovable, be steadfast. Follow those who love Jesus, grieve those who hate Jesus and anticipate your eternity with Jesus. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.